If you have your Bible, some of you have been waiting more than a month for this, please turn to the book of Acts. <laughs> it's good to take some breaks and uh, consider the seasons of life and be reminded of some of the foundational truths that we build on week by week, year by year, and it's also good to get back into the series that we've been in, going through the book of Acts. And so, while you're turning to Acts, find Acts 16. Acts 16. So we'll be continuing our series there. And I'm sure everyone remembers last time. Yeah, I, you know, it's like, what, what did we do last time? What did I say last time? Okay, great. So, a lot has happened uh, since we were last in Acts. But I do think most of us have the general idea of where things are going in Acts. So just as a very quick reminder before we get started today, uh, we're picking up in Acts 16, 11, which is essentially the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas went on uh, what they wouldn't have talked about as the first missionary journey because that was their only one so far. But they went on a missionary journey, which we now know as the first missionary journey. After that, they came back to the Jerusalem Council where an important decision was made about what it means to follow Jesus. If you're not a Jew, do you have to like become a Jew? Do you have to convert to Judaism and believe in Jesus to belong to him and be part of his people? And they said an emphatic no to that We are saved through faith in Christ. And that's how Jews are saved. That's how non-Jews are saved. And then after that, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go and visit all the places we've been and the churches there and see how they're doing. But then they had a disagreement about John Mark, which led to their uh, separation from each other, which actually led to more ministry than would have happened if they'd stayed together. Paul picks up Timothy on the way and Silas. We'll see Silas in the text for today. And then they're trying to do what they believe is God's will, going, taking the gospel, planting churches, and they have an idea about where they should go. And we're told things like the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them. And as we said last month in looking at this, I don't know exactly what that means, but it was very clear to them. They knew they weren't supposed to go where they had wanted to go. But then the Lord redirected them through a vision that came to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which was to the west of them, saying, come over and help us. So we've got a map, right? Do we have a map, Judah? Look at that. Awesome. And you're like, that map is so small. Make it bigger. Way to go. All right, so they started out in Antioch, which is still not big enough to actually read the words, right? Except for me, because I'm a little closer than everyone else to it right now. You can read it. Fantastic. Front row can read it. Everyone sit in the front row next week. This one is wide open. Okay? So they leave from Antioch in Syria, which is down in the bottom right, where all the arrows are going back and forth. The arrows here represent the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. The one going up from Antioch is this second missionary journey, where initially they go back through all the cities they've been to before, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, all that. 
Then they go way up to Troas, and that's where he's trying to go east to Bithynia. You can see Bithynia and Pontus. He wants to go east into Asia. That's what the Lord didn't let them do. And they see the man of Macedonia, that top left, saying, come over and help us. And so that is what they set out to do. And we'll see some of the cities here in the beginning of our text as we read it in a minute as they land in Samothrace and then eventually get to Philippi. So that's where they are, and they'll go throughout Macedonia. We'll see in the next few weeks Thessalonica, Berea, and eventually you'll get to Athens in chapter 17 and then Corinth following that. So that's where they're going. To get a little sense, this is a long way, this is a big trip, and they're not flying on planes, they're not driving cars, this is long. And he kind of just says it in a couple verses, uh, but it's, it's a big deal what they're doing. But they get to Philippi for today, and Luke will point out in the text that Philippi was a Roman colony, And this is important because the people there wouldn't have considered themselves just Philippians, even though, yes, we do have a letter back to this church, and it's the letter to the Philippians because they were in Philippi, but they wouldn't think of themselves just as Philippians or Macedonians, but they are Romans. It was a big deal to be this far from Rome. You can't even see Rome on the map. It's over in Italy, the boot that you've seen on the maps of the Mediterranean, right? We'll show one of those one day. It'll be cool. So you can't even see Rome on here. They're a long way from Rome, and yet this town, not everything around it, but this city is like a little Rome in the middle of Greece. And so they have all the rights, all the privileges of Roman citizenship, and that's how they thought about themselves. That was kind of as good as you could get, and they were definitely better in their minds than everyone around them. They certainly had more freedom and opportunity than others. So that's going to be important. Then Paul's letter to the Philippians later on was written to the church that's founded here. And it's fun uh, when we went through Philippians a few years ago, thinking back like, who's receiving this? Lydia's receiving this letter. This jailer's receiving this letter. Maybe even this uh, slave girl who has the demon cast out of her. We're not told specifically that she becomes a believer in Jesus. She's at the very least delivered from the demonic influence on her life. Maybe they're all the ones who are going through suffering again and are being encouraged by Paul with this letter. Look at this from Philippians 1. Paul's writing, he says, For it has been granted to you like a gift, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, which you should certainly do, and we'll see that in the text for today, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And we will see conflict today. Paul was engaged in conflict because he was engaged in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during this first missionary journey, for the most part, during that first missionary journey, it was the Jews who persecuted Paul and his companions because they were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And we'll see that again some going forward too. But now in Philippi, it's Gentiles, the Philippians, us Romans, as they'll say who are afraid that their way of life will be turned upside down. For some of them, it happens right in this text, when Paul casts the demon out of the girl. 
But so today, as we consider the beginning of this second missionary journey, we'll see fruitful ministry followed by persecution and imprisonment. But that's not all. They continue to praise the Lord in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of persecution, and that leads to continued fruitfulness. Ultimately, people are saved, and a church is planted, and there's much for us to consider, much for us to learn from this text. So with all that as kind of backdrop, set up, look at your text, and I'll read aloud, follow along as I read Acts 16, 11 to 40. This is right after they've had the vision and concluded, okay, God's called us to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them, they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. For how your word records what really happened. And tells us of the work of your spirit. The establishment of your church. The praises of your people in the midst of persecution. We thank you for the book of Acts. That helps us see all these things that you are doing by the power of your spirit in the name of your son for your glory. Teaching us. Even if our situation is not exactly the same. How to live as those who belong to you and will be with you forever. We thank you that the good news has been brought all the way to us. And we have heard it and you have opened our hearts to believe. Would you help us by your grace, to continue holding on to you by faith. And no matter what comes, to live for your glory in a world that's so lost and in the dark. God, would you meet with us now? Would you help us in these moments and for all our days? In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea this morning is this. No matter what comes, we can count on God's presence and power to accomplish his plan. No matter what comes, we can count on God's presence and power to accomplish his plan. First, we're going to look at his plan, what that is, and then we'll see his power and then consider our part. So first, God's plan. No matter what comes, we can count on God's presence and power to accomplish his plan. His plans aren't our plans. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in your life. I've noticed it once or twice or a thousand times in mine. His plans are not our plans. They're better. And it's his plan through suffering, through difficulty to save his people. To save well-to-do people like Lydia, who was a seller of purple. She wasn't from there. She probably wasn't a Roman citizen, but she came from Thyatira, a land known for the purple dye that was associated with royalty, associated with wealth. 
She had at least some means. We don't know how wealthy. It doesn't make a big deal of her wealth in this story, but she's also able to say, come stay at my house, which not everyone in that culture would have been able to do. Not everyone in our culture is able to do that today. He said, come, because it's Paul and his group, right? It's not just like, I have one bed. It's like, come and stay at our house. And then her house most likely became the home for that church. So well-to-do people, poor, enslaved people, like the girl who has the demon cast out of her, desperate people, like the jailer who was about to kill himself because he knew he'd be killed anyway if his prisoners escaped. People from different places, they weren't all from Philippi. People of different status, but all united in Christ. And isn't this our story? We're not all from the same place. We don't all look alike. We don't all think the same way. We don't all have the same favorite football team. I think most of our teams are out. Sorry about that. We have different opinions on food and drink, about what's best, what gets us going, what's most excited. We have different opinions on politics. Can we say that out loud? We even have different, well, I'm not going to say that one. We have different opinions on all sorts of things. We come from different places, different backgrounds. We have different kind of default mindsets on certain issues. And yet, we are one in Christ Jesus. That a jailer can rejoice with the prisoners who've told him the good news. That rich and poor can gather together, knowing that before Christ we were all impoverished. All the money we can bring will not help us stand in his presence. So whether you have a little, whether you have a lot, that's not where it's at. We were all poor, but we have all been made rich because Jesus became poor for us. He who had everything came and gave his life to make us one. And it happens like it does in this story through suffering. Sure, Paul and Silas suffer, but their suffering is just a dim reflection of the suffering of Christ for us. This is God's plan, that it's through suffering, the suffering of Christ, that we are saved. We who deserve his wrath are given mercy because of the sacrifice of his son. So God's plan is to save his people, and he does it through suffering. He did it ultimately through the suffering of Christ, but it's not over. We're called to follow him. We're called to follow him in his sufferings. I mean, remember Paul back when he was first converted, when the Lord met him, And then he was waiting, and Ananias was going to come and pray over him, and the scales would fall from his eyes, and he'd be able to see again, and he would be baptized and ready to follow Jesus and live for him. He says, the angel says to him, I need to show him how much he will suffer for my sake. 
Like, well, why did Paul get saved then if his life's going to be so hard? Because he has the hope, as we affirm together, of the life to come. The servant is not above his master. Difficulties will come. We've already seen this multiple times in Acts, and we'll see it again and again as we move forward. Certainly, Paul could sing with John Newton and believers across the generations through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Or as Paul would write near the end of his life to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You catch that? That wasn't just a first century thing. We maybe have forgotten that. Well, we, ah, that's not for us. We don't like that. I don't want that. I don't want it either. All right, so here I am telling you guys. I've got it down. I don't. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is God's plan for people to be saved through suffering, but that suffering's not for nothing. In the midst of our suffering, we tell the good news of salvation through Jesus, which has even more power when we're acting differently than we would have if we didn't have hope in him. Right? There's probably not too many prisoners who are praying and singing hymns to God at midnight. I can pretty much guarantee I wouldn't be singing hymns to God at midnight. There might be prayers. They'd be more like imprecatory prayers. They were praying. They were singing God's praise while they were wrongfully imprisoned. Right? It's not like, well, it's against the law to teach about Jesus and they happened to get caught and wow, they were so brave. They weren't doing anything wrong, right? They were beaten and thrown in prison because the owners of the slave girl knew that their hope of gain was gone. When the demon went, their money went. Like, this can't be this way. We don't like this. We don't like our way of life. Our way of making money, being upset by your religion. You can't do that here. But it wasn't technically against the law. There wasn't a fair trial. And in the midst of their wrongful suffering, they praised the Lord. Who else suffered wrongfully for us? The one who suffered silently, giving his life in our place. It's God's plan for people to be saved through someone telling the good news of salvation through Jesus and for others hearing that good news to believe and to be baptized. And that's what we see here in this text. And so I want to say a word while we're still talking about God's plan about the household baptisms. We have two of them here in the text for today. And these stories are snippets. They're summaries of what happened kind of a need-to-know version, and we can tell from some short sentences here that there's a lot more that was said and a lot more that happened than just what's here in the text, but there's enough to give us a pretty good idea of what's going on. It's kind of like what Cornelius was told when he had the vision as Peter's recounting the story in Acts eleven fourteen, The angel says to Cornelius, he, speaking of Peter, he will declare to you a message 
by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You and all your household will be saved by hearing this message. And then in Acts 10, after they heard that message, Cornelius and all his household were baptized. Those who had heard the message. Like the story of Cornelius, these stories center on Lydia and the jailer. Lydia at the beginning of our text, the jailer at the end. But notice, even in the most famous verse in our text, when he says, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's where I stopped memorizing it when I was a kid. I don't know about you. Um, but Luke's not done because Paul wasn't done. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And it doesn't stop there. Acts 16, 32 and 33. Just keep reading there with me. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's who heard the word of the Lord. And then he takes care of them. He took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So again, he's kind of centered in the story. It's focused on him believing in God, but the entire household hears the good news and rejoices and is baptized. That's the pattern. People hear the good news. They believe and having believed, they identify with Jesus, following him in baptism, living in obedience to his command. They heard, they believed, and this is the pattern. The word is preached, often in the midst of suffering, in the midst of weakness. Hearers believe and are baptized. That's God's plan and part of the good news of this text is that God's plan is accomplished by God's power. Because we can go like, Paul, well, he was great. I'm not like that. And the thing is, we, we probably aren't. <laughs> but the same God who called him is the one who calls us. The same spirit who lived in him is the same spirit who lives in us and enables us to fulfill the calling that he gives us. Does your calling feel like too much? If it doesn't, you haven't been deep in enough yet. Your calling is too much. None of us can do it on our own. But Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has promised his presence and his power. He has promised to be with us to the end of the age. So God's plan isn't accomplished by Paul, it's accomplished by God's power. So let's consider God's power in this text. One really obvious place where God's power is seen is when Paul, greatly annoyed, casts out the demon. I love that. <laughs> she was saying things that were true, right? I mean, you look back at what she's saying there. In verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. Right or wrong? Right. 
who proclaim to you the way of salvation, right or wrong? Right. Just like the demons in the Gospels, right? They were the first ones saying, I know who you are. You're the son of God. And he's like, not today, Satan. Not from you. Not like that. They were telling the truth, right? James tells us the demons believe. And they shudder. They're shuddering. They're trembling in his presence. And this demon that could tell the future can tell that these are servants of the Most High God who are telling the way of salvation. Exactly right, but not the right messenger. The text tells us this, this went on for a while. It's not like the first time. This, this is not a message on patience, but that just came to mind just now probably because I need to learn more of it, and perhaps one or two of us do too, right? Even though I love the, like, Paul greatly annoyed told her, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, out. But he didn't do it on the first day. He didn't do it the first time. But then it was time, right? So he's greatly annoyed. He's troubled. He's upset. It's like, we're done here. We're not playing games anymore. And in the name of Jesus, like Jesus had cast the demons out in the Gospels, he says, you're done here. And the demon was done. A startling display of God's power. The power of the name of Jesus Christ. Another instance is the earthquake. Right? They're singing hymns to God. They're praying at midnight. And yes, scholars will tell us earthquakes were common in this region. But we'd also be wise to go, like, God's the one who did this. The foundations were shaken. All the doors open. It doesn't fall down on top of everyone. All the doors open and everyone's loosed from their bonds, right? So they're in the stocks. They're deep in the prison. They're bound. They're not going anywhere. And all of a sudden, for every prisoner in there, ding. And they're free. And we look at these and go, wow, God worked. That was his power. And it was. But those aren't the only miracles in this text. They're not the only display of God's power. Paul talks about the gospel as God's power. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In the beginning of our text, those first few verses, after they got to Philippi, they said, we want to find where there's a place of prayer. What this means is that there's no synagogue in Philippi. You needed ten Jewish men to have a synagogue. And that's where Paul always goes first. He's going to do that coming up as well. He would go there first and speak the gospel there. And they figured there'd be a place of prayer, we're told, outside the city, and there was. And they went and spoke the gospel to the women who were gathered there. Lydia is one of those women who heard what Paul had to say. She was listening, but then we're told it's the Lord who opened her heart to pay attention. The idea is the Lord opened her heart to respond to the words that Paul was speaking. Lydia listened, and it was the Lord who opened her heart. It's like 
earlier in Acts, a few chapters ago in Acts 13, 48, as the Jews are rejecting Jesus and the Gentiles are there and they say, okay, since you're rejecting the purpose of God for yourselves, we're going to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Every one of them. Salvation is a miracle. God's plan is accomplished by God's power. And this is good news for us as those in this generation who are called to go out with the gospel. Do you ever feel weak in your gospel proclamation? Yeah. Every one of us does. And you might think, well, but the, oh, the pastors, they're good at it. They just feel so confident like the Spirit's in them in like a different way than the rest of us. It's like hopefully no one here thinks that. Just in case you do, I can tell you you're wrong about that. It's an area where everyone feels weak and everyone is called. And it's why we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And it's why as we walk through our days, we need to be praying, depending on the Holy Spirit, asking him to lead us, to guide us, to empower us, to give us the words to say. And the beauty of it is that he does all that, and it's not our words that save anyone. It's not our wisdom. And sometimes that's why we hold back in telling people about Jesus, is that we're going to do it wrong. The one way for sure to do it wrong is to not do it at all. But we're so fearful. I say we on purpose. We are so fearful. I'm going to do it wrong. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Maybe you will. The Lord knows how to use even our messed up words for his glory. And we might wish, like, I, I wish it had said, like, exactly what Paul said. You know, we have believe in the Lord Jesus. It's like, but then it says he spoke the word to everyone in the house. It's like, well, what did he say? Then I'll know what to say. Well, we do have some good examples of that in Acts. We've got a, a really fun one coming up in Acts 17 that will help us think about how to talk to people who don't believe in the same God we do and aren't working from the same framework. And you can't just start with the Ten Commandments. They're like, Pfft. So there is help for us, but it's also helpful for us not to have like, here's the script. Here's the magic words. Because we're not trusting in magic words. We're not telling people to follow us in praying magic words that will save them. We're telling them to trust in a Savior who gave his own life for them. In love. We have amazing good news. Salvation. Anytime anyone responds with faith to the good news, it's a miracle. It's by God's power, his gospel, the merits of Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's not about our cunning. It's not about our cleverness. It's not about our wisdom, not our might, not our power, but by his Spirit. So this is God's plan to save people through the gospel being shared in the midst of suffering, people will hear and believe and be baptized as the Lord opens their hearts, as we follow him. And so what is our part? 
What's our part? First, believe in the Lord Jesus. And so we begin with a question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? This is the very simple response that Paul gave the jailer initially. He says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And this doesn't just mean agreeing with the facts. We affirm together the Nicene Creed, and I'm so glad that we do. It's so uh, faith-inspiring. Like, yes, that, that's what we believe. We believe in him. But it's not just saying, I agree with all those facts. You can believe that God created the world and that you will answer to him one day. You can believe that Jesus came and really lived and really died on the cross. And you can believe even that he really rose from the dead and ascended to his father. You can say, I think all those things happened. I believe those things. And yet, be outside of Christ. When we think about believing, we, that's how we tend to use believe. Right? We, there it is. There's the set of facts. Yep, I believe that. I believe that is true. But it's not just believing. The idea is resting. Trusting. It's resting from your own works and trusting in the one who gave his life for you. I was reminded recently of an old illustration I heard years and years ago, so I can't take any credit for this, and you probably all heard it anyway, so even if I tried, you'd be like, I know that one. The difference between just believing things in our head and trusting is the difference between saying, I think that chair can hold me, right? If we brought a chair up here, not one of these because you're all sitting in them already, but we brought up a chair and we said, who here believes that that chair would hold them? And you say, oh, yep, sure, I believe it. You have no stake, right? I can believe it from here in this comfortable chair. Do I believe that that chair will hold me? It's one thing to say you do. It's another thing to sit in the chair. To put all your weight on it and to have it hold you up. That you're not holding yourself up at all anymore. All your trust is in the chair. Or it's like the story that's probably apocryphal of a guy who would go across a wire at Niagara Falls on a unicycle, which is nuts. Right? How many of you believe that I could do this carrying a person? Oh, yeah, you're amazing. Okay. Right? It's one thing to believe he can carry 200 pounds with him across the falls, it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow and have him push you across. Thankfully, trusting in Jesus is not like trusting in some dude <laughs> to push you across the Niagara Falls. It doesn't require that. But it does require trusting him. Recognizing that the way you have tried to live your life on your own 
will never work when you stand before him. Even if it seems to work now. Even if, well, I have all the, the money I need. I have the comfort that I need. I have what I want out of life. Even if everything seems to work now, none of that will matter then. And so do you believe? Are you trusting not your good works mostly in a little bit of Jesus to get you over the edge? Are you trusting that he lived the perfect life that we were all supposed to live but none of us have? That he died a bloody, sacrificial, atoning death, taking all your sins, as Peter would later write, in his own body on the tree, that it was for you. Are you trusting in him alone as your savior? Do you believe that after he died that bloody sacrificial atoning death, on the third day he did not stay dead, but rose from the dead in power? And even now is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and one day he will come again to gather everyone who belongs to him, everyone who believes in him. His one holy Catholic and apostolic church to be with him forever. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, today can be your day. Take him. Give up living for what will never last and trust in Christ alone. And for those who are trusting in him, have you been baptized yet in obedience to him? That's the pattern. You hear, you believe, and you get baptized. And maybe there's some, you say, well, I, I believe in Jesus, and I just haven't, you know, gotten around to it yet. I would say today can be your day, but we, we don't have the tank up here. Next Sunday can be your day. And I'm not kidding about that. We can do that next week, right? We can do it today? All right. We, yeah, because we have a family meeting. We can do it right at the end of the family meeting, right? We got plenty of time. We, we actually would want to talk to you a little bit. But if you are trusting in Christ, if you've cast yourself on him and you haven't yet followed him in obedience in that pattern that he gave us in the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can do that. You can obey him. And then for those of us who belong to him, who are trusting him alone, who have been baptized, are we trusting him to accomplish his plan? Jesus said that he will build his church. And the very gates of hell cannot stand against it. Sometimes we can feel like things are flying out of control. You ever feel that way? Whether personally, whether in our city, in our nation, in the world. We say things are not going the way they're supposed to go. I don't disagree. But even in the midst of things not going the way they're supposed to go, like when you're beaten with rods illegally and thrown into prison illegally, you can trust the Lord to accomplish his plan. If they're not imprisoned, the jailer doesn't become a believer. And Paul would keep doing this. He writes back to them in the letter to the Philippians. Again, probably to this Philippian jailer. It's like, I want to let you know my imprisonment 
has worked out for the advance of the gospel of Christ. The whole imperial guard knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. Wow. Like if, if I'm ever imprisoned for my faith in Christ, I don't, I mean, I hope, right? I don't think I'll have a testimony like that. Are we ready? And not in a, Lord, I'll die with you, right? That went great for Peter. We don't want to be arrogant. But we want to trust God to accomplish his plan and be ready to follow him in suffering. Because indeed, the servant is not greater than his master. And even in the middle of suffering, we can praise him, telling of his great salvation. Wherever we are, whether we're free, whether we're imprisoned, whether we're less free than we'd like to be, we are free in Christ, and we are free to praise him and to tell of his great salvation. I love how when the earthquake happens, rather than assuming that that's how God was rescuing them from persecution, they stayed and told the good news to the jailer. Again, this is where it's like, not like me. Right? It's like, Lord, I'm in prison. I'm praying. And maybe they were praying to be released. Earthquakes, like, Lord, answer to our prayers. That's amazing. We praise you in suffering and you deliver us from suffering. We are on our way out of here. But they're not. They're not. They use the moment instead to see someone rescued, not from stocks, but from sin and death and hell. So a question for us. Are we more concerned about our own freedoms or the salvation and the good of our neighbors? If we just get our way of thinking from the news, we're not going to be thinking this way. Are we more concerned about our freedoms and the erosion of them and what will happen and how free we will be or not? I'm not saying that doesn't matter. But I'm saying what will last forever matters so much more. Now, this doesn't mean we never exercise our rights. You might say, why are you doing an about face on us now? This doesn't mean we never exercise our rights. And we see that right in our text. Right? The text doesn't stop at the rejoicing and all that. Right? The the town leaders in the morning are like, hey, you know what? Those guys we beat yesterday and threw in prison, that was plenty. We made a public example of them, whatever. We actually don't know why or what they were thinking. I'm just making that up right now. And they say, let them go. And Paul's like, no, nah, we're not having it like that. You need to come down here. We're Roman citizens. And when they hear that, they're scared because you can't do that. You could do that to a slave you could do that to somebody from somewhere else, but you can't do that to a Roman citizen. You can get in trouble. You think police brutality is new? When you think someone's less than you, it's easy to rough them up. Like, Wait, you're citizens? You caught that on camera? Everyone saw that yesterday? We are in big trouble. And so now they come down, oh, you know, okay, great. We're, oh, yes, you're okay. We're wonderful, right? So Paul does exercise his rights. 
He could have stayed silent and just been like, yep. He lets them know. And part of it, uh, scholars believe, commentators believe, was for the vindication of the gospel. Because when you are publicly punished for believing in Jesus, for proclaiming the gospel, and when it's illegal, especially in that day in a, in a shame and honor culture, the stain would have attached to Christianity itself. And so Paul had an opportunity to use his rights that were his rights as a Roman citizen, just like we have rights, those of us who are American citizens. It doesn't mean we never exercise our rights. He exercises his rights here says, you can't treat me like that. You can't do that. And they listen. And even then they ask him, leave the city. And he doesn't do it right away. I love that in verse 40. They ask him to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Makes sense. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So they exercised their rights. There is a place for us to exercise our rights as citizens. But we must remember, as Paul reminds these Philippians who would have been so proud of their Roman citizenship in Philippians 1.27, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior who will change these bodies to be like his glorious body. That's what we're waiting for. That's where our hope is. Not in everything turning around to be the way that we think it should be. One day, everything will turn around to just the right way and everything will be right when we are with Jesus and all his people forever. And on the way, we're to live for his glory. So what about when we face persecution or the threat of it? What if we will not be able to live freely or speak freely of what the Bible teaches clearly? And I, I understand there are new concerns about that even this week, not just in Canada, but in Indiana of all places. Let the hearer understand. Because we don't have time. We must be prepared to suffer, not to win a culture war, but to suffer for Jesus. We cannot be silent when God has told us to speak, no matter the cost. Even if we lose the public opinion battle, even if we lose an actual legal battle, we say what he has said, and we do it in love. Not to be mean, not to get in trouble so we can think we're a hero or a martyr because we go to jail for being a jerk. We need to be careful about that. Some of us love controversy, love fights. We're told the servant of the Lord must not strive, but must be gentle toward everyone. Now, we need to be ready to correct opponents. It doesn't mean we just put up with everything and never say anything. Oh, yeah, you guys are right. No. We need to speak up for what is true, but with gentleness with a goal not just of winning an argument, but of winning a person, like a Lydia, like a jailer. And we can't say everything about that today. So I would commend to your reading or listening this week 
the letter to the Philippians, which is filled with great advice from Paul from prison about how to keep trusting in Jesus and holding on to Jesus and follow Jesus who humbled himself and is highly exalted. Written to these same people, this church that was born in suffering and continued in suffering. I would also commend the letter of 1 Peter. We went through it several years ago, five years ago, maybe four years ago. And so we do have sermons. If you, if you want to listen to me talk longer, uh, we do have sermons on the letter to the Philippians from five years ago and 1 Peter from four years ago where we're talking about suffering for Christ, living for him in the midst of a broken world, shining as lights in a dark world, as Paul would say in Philippians 2. But 1 Peter, again, filled with grace and truth that will inspire hope and joy in Jesus who has given us life and hope beyond the grave that teaches us to look forward to all the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus is revealed so that no matter what comes, we can count on God's presence and power to accomplish his plan. It doesn't mean that things will go our way, And we might say, well, Paul and his companions could be pretty confident. Remember, just a few verses ago, they had that vision. They knew exactly where they were supposed to go and exactly what they were supposed to do. Do you think it made the beating hurt less? Do you think it made the public nature of it any less humiliating or embarrassing, knowing that they were in the center of God's will? But it does mean that we can praise him in the middle of persecution. Paul has a certain credibility when he says we rejoice in sufferings in Romans 5.3. But it's not just for Paul. It's for us. Jesus said to his disciples, the end of the Beatitudes, we like the beginning of the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, merciful, all that kind of stuff. That's sweet. Here's the end of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5.10-12. through 12. It'll be on the screen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No matter what comes, we can count on God's presence and God's power to accomplish his plan. So let's count on him. Let's play our part. He will be with us until we go to him or until he comes for us. What grace we have received. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that this good news has come all the way to us and that you have opened our hearts to believe. Would you keep us by your mighty power through whatever we will face? And would you help us, whatever the test, to keep preaching your gospel till our dying breath? Would you help us now? 
Would you help us later? Would you help us to trust you, to trust your plan, and to walk with you through all our days until we see you face to face? In Jesus' name.